Amen, guys. I am so encouraged that I was looking at the lineup and there's nothing better to pump up the whole church by seeing Al, Nicole doing the communion in Walter. And then the last song before I, I do this sermon was this beautiful song about praises heard around the world. And I just knew it that that was just from Jono because that's my favorite song. Um, and a bit of some technical issues happening. Um, I can't connect to my remote. So, you know, just, just bear with me for a while. That was hard. That was hard. I think, I think the main problem would be... I think I'm, I'm too far away. Whoa. Okay. I know, right? But, but anyway off to a rocky start, but I'm here, and I'm here to preach the word. So, you know, um, you know, it, it just goes to show, right, that when you're preaching, a lot could happen, but the gospel must be preached regardless of, of all of this stuff. So, just, just a quick recap about what's happening in church. A lot has been happening in the different kinds of ministries all around in, in, um, in, in, in our Auckland Church of Christ. The marrieds have been Oh, it's it's gone again, guys. Sorry. Yeah, I'll just I'll just do it right here. Is that right? Yeah. Man, it's it's just not working for me. You can preach it, bro. I know. Hold on. Let's let's just do this. But on, on, the, on those levels, the marriage have apparently had a very good marriage night with um, our, our man here, Alberto. I haven't seen Alberto. There you go, Alberto and Joe Hill. So apparently it was such a good uh, marriage event. And then back in the campus in the professionals ministry, all the boys since yesterday, we went out to Devonport. And then, uh, yeah, me and Tim and, and Jonathan, we went out to Devonport and we just had a good fellowship. And Abby, of course. And at night time and at, at, at night time the, um, the other brothers that have been working went to, um, to this pub called Kingslander and while we were there we were kind of like expecting this whole Old Blacks game that's happening only to find out that it was cancelled like what is that like the first time that I'm watching an Old Blacks game and then it's just kind of like cancelled it's just crazy but having said that um, we are going to continue with this whole Genesis chapter 8. And in the previous week, um, Timothy was doing a very splendid job with this whole flood story about Noah and the ark. He did represent for the campus. Now it's time for the big boys and the professionals to represent and finish off this whole story. You know? So having said that, that we're here and we're to represent. Can I get an amen for the professionals right here? Let's go. So I know, right? So the Bible, what we're going to talk about today is the Bible uses different kinds of visual imagery to make a point, which is sadly I can't use it in the screen because my laptop is... Oh, yeah. I just did that. Swipe? Yeah. Can you swipe? Yeah. So, so the Bible uses very important visual imagery to make a point. Case in point, um, like um, with, with this whole flood story, the Bible uses different kinds of, of language, such as the wind, the floodgates, a dove, 
um, this whole idea of the ark. And the Bible uses those points to make a, a very good theme about this whole flood story. And why do we do that? It's for the readers to get a certain point across. Case in point, if in the modern times, right, different kinds of visual imageries have different kinds of effects on people. With this picture, for example, if everyone, regardless of race, age, or creed, everyone, when they look at this photo, automatically means hate. Jokes are not. It's all about love, right? It's not literally a physical representation of what a heart is. But everyone, when they see that sign, it's like, oh, love. Like, I love my mom, or I love my dad, or I love anyone, you know? <laughs> and on the other hand, different kinds of imageries also have different kinds of effect to certain kinds of people. I know for people with certain ages only can understand this kind of image. <laughs> I know for a fact that for people under 20 would not even recognize what this is. This is a, this is a, this is a cassette. And if you step it up a notch, I know for a fact that teens or anyone that's younger than that would not recognize the relationship between a pen and what a cassette is. You know what I'm saying? So the whole point that I'm trying to get at is when we look at this scripture and when we read through Genesis, let's understand in the mind of what these Hebrew people understand with the images of wind and rain and everything. So let's go down and let's go um, deep with this whole concept about the flood that covered the whole world. So let us pray. Father God, we, we thank you so much for this wonderful time, Lord, to be in this body and to be in this fellowship, Lord, and we're here to glorify you and to honor you, Lord, and to give you praise. Um, and, and thank you so much, Lord, for, for being with me as I... Um, um, preach through the scriptures, Lord, and, and may the Holy Spirit be with me, Lord, as I, as I show them the gospel, Lord, and, and may it reach out to the people who are lost and who are seeking, Lord, and, and may it change their hearts, Lord, and, and may all of that, Lord, be, con, con, um, be converted into Bible studies, and those Bible studies be converted into people who want to be Christians, Lord. We pray for a good day, Lord, and we pray for an awesome time of fellowship after. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So today, let's go and let's dig deep. So if you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. And let's go there. So it says here, with an epic entry that says, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth at the end of the hundred and fifty days. The water had gone down. And on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window and he made in the ark and sent out a raven and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. 
Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in it was a freshly plucked olive leaf. The Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time, it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the seventh day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, and this is a key thing to understand, and God said, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So what did Noah did? So Noah came out, exactly what the Lord said, together with his sons and his wife and his son's wife. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds. Everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. The Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offering on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Now, I only have two points for this, because this is a continuation of the whole flood story. And the first point that I have is God remembers. We hit the ground running in this chapter with this marvelous phrase that God said in verse 1, that God remembered Noah and all the animals in the world. This is an ordinary language that implies that God forgets. Of course he doesn't. But all throughout the Old Testament, this Hebrew word, which translates into remember, means zakar. And this usually implies covenant language. All throughout the Old Testament, this word has been used to remind us that God remembers his covenant for his people. In chapter 9, God remembers his covenant with Noah. In the other chapters, in in the different kinds of books, God remembers his covenant with Abraham. And all throughout the Old Testament, God remembers his covenant with his people. And when God remembers, it just doesn't mean that God just remembers and sits idly by. He doesn't. After, in verse 1, when God remembers, what did God do? When, after verse 1, when God remembers, he brought forth wind. 
And this is the first part of the image of wind. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, this image of wind has been used countless times. And it's often associated with divine power. God used the word wind. Original word is ruach. It helps if you've got a phlegm because you get like a ruach and all that. And it's often used to convey the power to create or to change or to destroy. But most especially time and time again, this phlegmy word ruach has been used to save. We can see these images being used in different cases. And even the first chapter, when everything was dark and void, when everything was barren, the Spirit of God, was hovering over the earth, ready to create, just ready to form, and ready to burst forth this huge energy to form the whole world. And we can see these images in different kinds of verses as well. In Exodus, when the people were captives in this whole Egyptian empire, God used the wind to bring forth locusts. Now, for those people who have been in church for a while, we could see how that later on transpired. When the locusts came, the people of the um, Israelite people were free. And later on, in the next succeeding stories, we could see how this wind was used. And everyone, even if you're not a non-Christian, you would see this powerful image when the, when the Hebrew people were trapped and they were on the run from this Egyptian people. And they were trapped between this sea and at the back was the whole army racing after them. What did God do? He brought forth a strong east wind that would open the sea. And what happens after that? They were able to escape. They were able to have salvation and freedom. This kind of concept, if you're a Hebrew people, and if you've been thinking about it, this image of a wind you will be reminded time and time again of this supreme being of utmost power remembering you and saving you in the most difficult times of your life. How can we relate that to our modern image in today's world? One thing that I could think of that, this, that we could compare to this vast power is nothing than the nuclear bomb. Few technologies have escaped and have changed the landscape of society today. The discovery of nuclear energy was one of them. It's an almost unlimited source of power, and it can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. On the 6th of August, 1945, the world witnessed this power in the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And when they saw this image of a powerful mushroom cloud of energy, the whole perception of power of the world totally changed. Before that, the perception of power in the world was basically just electricity or steam or coal. But when they saw that mushroom cloud erupt, that had changed their image of what true power is. 
This would have been what was on the Hebrews' minds when they hear this image or see this image of a wind that God used to save his people. But the only difference is God is not just a ball or a mushroom cloud of energy. When you look at this whole chapter, the flood did not just stop on its own. It was an intentional will of God to force, to stop this whole flood. And the Hebrew people, when they read this, ma- um, this passage, they imagined all of this stuff. That this, we have a creator of supreme being that intentionally and forcefully stops whatever that's happening because he loves us and he has a covenant for us. And what did Noah do after when the flood was finished? He was grateful. He built an offering. He built a thanksgiving offering. If you had known that the creator of the universe saved you because he remembered you, what would you do? One of the things, the connecting themes in the New Testament is, would it be awesome that since we know that God remembers us, would it be awesome that we also remember God? Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 22, verse 19. One of the connecting themes in the New Testament was that Jesus also wants us to remember him. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19, he said, And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This whole idea that a God comes down to this earth to save us from our sins and in return what he wants us to do is to remember him. That is such an awesome kind of thinking. How would that look like in our lives though? How can we truly remember God and Jesus for what he truly is? One of the practical things that I could think of is, do we have God in the mindset in every day, in all the aspects of our life? One kind of thing that is very prevalent in our life is how do we make choices? How do we make individual choices in our lives? For example, for the teens, and not just for the teens, but basically for everyone around here in this church, how do we make choices when the draw of the world is too strong? When the appeal of drinking is too hard. When the, when the, when the appeal of, of, of sex, like not within the context of marriage or drugs, is too strong. Do we have the mindset to remember God and to remember our life as Christians? For CAP, most of us in CAP are usually campus students or professionals. And most of us, the, what we're trying to do is we're in the crossroad of identifying what is our purpose or identifying what is our goals towards our lives. Do we make God as the main factor when we make those choices? Choices when we go to work. What kind of work should I do? Choices on what kind of hours should I do? Choice on what locations, 
would make me suitable to work? Do we factor in God and the church when we're making all those decisions? For the married, I'm not a married yet, but I've got a lot of most of my close people that are disciples I, I, that I consider as like really close to me are married. I would encourage you most of the things that are happening in your lives, such as crisis with family, like a death of a loved one, or an instability of a job, or problems with marriage. And sometimes all of those trials and sometimes all of those problems might distract you from what's really important. This whole idea of remembering the powerful creator. And sometimes we get distracted and we become unfaithful with all of these problems. Do you put God in the midst of all of this messiness in your life? Do you have the, the mindset of making a faithful action when you make priorities and respond to them in a godly way? At the same time, think about it. If you realize that you've got a God who is basically a nuclear bomb and that's already on your side, what kind of mindset you should have? You should have a mindset of hope. A mindset that regardless of the consequences and regardless of the situations, your God loves you and your God really wants to save you. And your God has a covenant with, with you. I know for a fact that one of the things that I find difficult is I get too frustrated and I get too heartbroken when I try to reach out to my loved ones. It's hard, right? When you go out and reach out to your, let's say, kid who just doesn't get it quite yet. Or you're trying to reach out to your mother or your father or you're trying to reach out to your aunt or whoever it is that you're close with. Sometimes my tendency is I get discouraged and I get disheartened. But we have to realize and we have to remember that we have a God who always saves us and always wants to reach out to those people who are lost. We need to remember this kind of thinking. And we need to remember that our God has got our back. Because our God is amazing. And our God always remembers us. And which leads to my second point. Our God also restores. If you think about it in the whole flood story, right? If you think about this, this, this whole flood it was God in the first place that started all of this mess, by the way. This whole cataclysm of wind and, and water and everything. God started all of this. And what was the main cause why God wanted to do this thing in the first place? God was deeply troubled with mankind's wickedness. And he basically wanted to reset he did this by unleashing the floodgates of heaven to rain down on humanity. Basically a big reset button. And what's left is this tiny family and this couple of animals that's inside the boat. It might seem that this is discouraging, but this is in fact hope. It, that's Noah, by the way. So the flood started off with God sending rain. If you think about it, this whole image of rain, 
all throughout the Old Testament, this image of rain has been used to convey God's judgment towards people. And the whole point, uh, next, next slide please. Yeah. And the whole point of this rain basically is to restore the things that are good and to take away the things that are unfixable and preserving the things that are good and fixable. And this whole idea of this flood narrative, God wants to get rid of man's wickedness and leave the good stuff inside this tiny ark, what God considers as righteous and what God considers as worthy. Next slide, please. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, You go into that ark, you and your family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. It was God who chose Noah intentionally. And it was God who commanded Noah to go into that boat. If you're a Hebrew, this image of God's judgment through the form of a rain, wiping the earth back and forth and cleaning everything out. And you have only one hope, which is the ark. What would have been in your mind? How can we relate that to our modern era in the modern times? One thing that I can think of is the International Red Cross. Why is that? The International Red Cross has been a symbol that has been used for people in war-torn places. And its main purpose is to protect, secure, and prevent the further killings and damage of people that are in these war-torn places. If you're in a war-torn place and if you're a refugee, if you see a sign of a Red Cross and you see a camp that's got a flag of a Red Cross, you would immediately see a sigh of relief. People claw and fight their way just to get into these camps. But sadly, not all can get in. And during times of mass casualty, the only people that can go are those that are actually healthy enough and have the greatest chance to survive. If you're a Hebrew and you're hearing the Noah's Ark story, this idea of a safe haven in the form of an ark, and in our modern equivalent of this idea of a Red Cross site, this would have been on your minds. If you're a Hebrew, you would be terrified of this whole image that God has been judging you. But at the same time, you would want to be in that ark as well. God did decide who gets to get into that ark. It wasn't a free-for-all where people can just get into that ark. No, was it? But the things that he considers as good, the animals, and in the people's side, it was Noah. What was in Noah that God had um, considered him as righteous? All throughout the Old Testament, um, and especially in the book of Genesis, it was prevalent enough that the character of Noah that was standing enough time and time again was this whole idea that Noah obeys God's commands. All throughout, in chapter 6, Noah did everything precisely 
as God had commanded them. In chapter 7, Noah organized the animals one by one and did all what the Lord had commanded. In Genesis chapter 7, still the same, everything that the Lord had commanded them. This idea that Noah obeyed God's commands, even if that doesn't make sense. And the only way that Noah was able to do that was faith. How can you do all of that stuff without even a drop of rain? But yet he had this character to obey God's commands. God wants to restore that kind of righteousness in us. Our original purpose was to have faith. And our original purpose was to obey the commands of God. And God wants to restore that. One of the character connecting ideas in the New Testament is you can be born again through Jesus Christ. Amen. And you can be born again if you follow Jesus Christ and you, have, and you have believe in him and you, we could do a Bible study on that. But there are other stuff as well that you, that one of the signs of you truly believing Jesus Christ and one of the signs of you truly uh, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ is that you obey his teachings. All throughout in the book of John you could actually see that. Jesus said if you hold on cling to his teachings, then you are really his disciples. In John 15, if you, keep your, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And what's amazing is this, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, this statement is absolutely the best thing that I have read so far. It says here, whoever claims to live in him must live as how Jesus did. And how did Jesus live? Let's open our Bibles one last time to Luke chapter 23, uh, chapter 22, verse 42. And it says here, during the times when Jesus was almost at the point of getting crucified, when he was having all of these emotions, what did Jesus say? He said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Amen. Jesus, even at his toughest time, followed God's will. A sign of a true believer is obeying the commands of God, even when it's hard. If you love Jesus, Jesus did it too, right? The only way, and sometimes we get discouraged, like, I can't possibly do that. How can I actually obey those kinds of teachings? Those are very hard teachings. But the only way for us to do that is through Jesus. As Christians, the only way that we can be truly restored to our original purpose to obey is to truly understand what Jesus has done for us through the cross. God's love should make us want to obey. And this is how we can truly obey. Not because of fear or punishment or because of reward so that people would think that you're good, but because of love. This whole idea that God loves us. And because of that, we can obey with a happy heart. 
In the same way, Noah must have felt stupid when he was making that boat. Like, why am I making a boat? There's no rain. But because of his faith in God, he did it anyway. In the same way, Jesus knew all that pain in what's ahead of him. But because of his love, he did it anyway. How would we practically do that in our lives? One of the key things, very simple, right? What are the, 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 the commands that Jesus wants us to do? Next slide. In John 15, it says, To love each other as I have loved you. Ooh, that's tough. If you truly understand that meaning, that is one tough thing. But because of Jesus' love, we can do that, right? If you think about it, what does loving each other actually mean? Sometimes loving each other means tough love. How can we do that? For example, for teens, and not just for teens, for everyone around here, if you see someone that's living a life of sin, would you call them out? It's not hard. It's so hard to call out a brother if you see him doing some stuff. If you see someone that's not living a life as a disciple, would you be able to have that courage to do it? Because if you truly love someone, you wouldn't allow that someone to live a life of wickedness. Another thing is this verse is actually encouraging us to love each other. Each other, not just a certain clique. Yeah. Not just a certain race. Yeah. Not just a certain people that you feel like you're close to. Jesus wants us to love one another. Each and every one of us. How often do we have the times that we just kind of gravitate towards people of our own race? Or gravitate towards people that we consider as cool? Or gravitate towards people that is, hey, this guy just fellowships very easily, doesn't ask me a lot of questions, I'll just hang out with him. You know? Why don't we truly love one another and get to know people that we haven't got to know? We're actually a family here. It's so encouraging for me to spend time with Nick and go out and share in campus with him. It's so encouraging for me that I have like a two-hour long talk with Tyson. That's the first time, bro. Love you. <laughs> it is so encouraging for me to hang out with Jonathan and just having like a, like a can of beer and just talking and what's happening with your life in a very deep and meaningful way. Do we have that kind of mindset that regardless of age or race or creed, we actually make an effort to love everyone, not just people of our own race? For the married, I'm not married yet. It's so hard, it's so hard to make this applicable to marriage. But like I said, I've got very close married disciple friends. What I've noticed is, what is true love between you and your kids? It is so hard to make an intentional effort to actually parent in a godly way. What's easy is like if you see something that your kids are not doing right, just let it, you know, just, just slip it or like let it pass. But spending time with teens 
and spending time during the internship with teens, I could actually appreciate what good intentional parenting is all about. And for the church in general, loving is all about actually loving. It's not because of the numbers. It's not because you want people to just get baptized. What this verse was all about is what true love is. Loving is to reach out for the lost, to reach out for the people who are poor, to reach out for the people who need help. Who among you here has brought something at one point in the last couple of months for the the, the food bank? I'm guilty. I'm not one of them. But what do we have that kind of mindset to love one another in a truly godly way? To sum it all up, this is the two points that I got from this flood story. And I hope you could take away something out of it and you could apply that in our fellowship, in our church in general. Point one is God remembers. If God remembers us, why don't we remember him? To make him the mindset in our lives every day, all the time. And point two, God wants to restore us. And because that God wants to restore us, why don't we make an effort to be righteous and to truly love one another the same way God loves us? So that's the end of my sermon, guys, and hopefully um, you've learned something out of it, and um, thank you.